This is episode number 20 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. If you've been keeping up with the blog and the email newsletter or even the YouTube channel, you'll know that I've been all about GraphQL for API development as of right now. GraphQL is a relatively new topic for API development. Um, I've been using RESTful API development practices for quite some time now, and I've only recently gotten into GraphQL. So with me today on the show, I have one of the project co-founders, His name is Lee Byron, and he's going to be helping me discuss and explain what GraphQL is and how to successfully use it in one of your projects. Before we jump into the core topic of this episode, I want to elaborate on some of the ways that you can follow the Polyglot developer. Um, So one of the best ways is on the blog, um, but also in the email newsletter. So if you go to newsletter.thepolyglotdeveloper.com, you can subscribe and get all of this information, including GraphQL topics, uh, right to your email inbox. With that little shameless plug out of the way, let's jump right into the episode. Hey everyone, I'm with Lee Byron, and we're going to be talking about a very popular subject as of right now, and that subject is going to be GraphQL. But before we get into the kind of gist of the topic, I want to give Lee a chance to introduce himself. So how are you doing, Lee? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. I'm Lee Byron. I'm an engineer at Robinhood. And before at Robinhood, I was at Facebook for close to 10 years. And while I was there, I worked on a bunch of open source projects, including GraphQL. So were you one of like the first employees at Facebook? Certainly not one of the first, but um, I started there uh, about four years into Facebook's history. So while you're at Facebook, was your your role? Um, what kind of developer were you? Were you a JavaScript developer, or what kind of stack did you work with? Um, I worked on a lot of different stacks. So Facebook uses a mix of JavaScript, PHP, Objective C, and Android or Java for the iOS and Android apps. Um, C plus plus for their backend services. So there's actually a lot of different languages going on at Facebook. So what do you prefer then? Um, I actually really like JavaScript. Um, I like it because there's a huge community built around it. Um, as a language, I really like Reason ML and, and Rust are particularly fascinating, although I don't always have that many opportunities to build stuff in those languages. But most of the stuff I build is in JavaScript. So, so you're doing mostly JavaScript at Robinhood right now? Yeah, a lot of JavaScript at Robinhood as well. Uh, JavaScript and Python mostly. And that's an investment brokerage, right? Yeah, financial services application. Awesome, awesome. Well, then let's jump right into the topic here. Uh, let's kind of get a feel for what GraphQL is. So maybe in your own words, can you tell me a little bit about what GraphQL is? Sure. Um, I think it helps to talk about where GraphQL came from. And that was in 2012, Facebook, we were trying to figure out how to build high-quality mobile applications. And it was kind of the first time that we had built a, a data-driven, client-rendered application in any way, shape, or form. And uh, we realized that we didn't have the API that we wanted for our products. We had a number of APIs, and and we tried them out, and we even evolved them a bit, um, and ultimately felt that none of them sort of met the the needs that we had for building a high-quality iOS app. 
So a couple folks at Facebook, Nick Schrock, Dan Schaefer, and, and myself, um, all kind of brought different perspectives and ideas on how to solve that problem. And sort of the end result of a couple month effort figuring out what a best of class API would look like ended up being GraphQL. And GraphQL is a, a product API. So people often hear the QL and they think that it's some way of talking about databases since most of the query languages people are familiar with talk to databases. But this is a product API query language. And that means that we're talking to sort of arbitrary backends, uh, which is really important in the case of Facebook because Facebook's has a big complicated backend full of lots of different services, languages, and there'd just be no way to sort of corral that all under the umbrella of a database. So we needed a way to talk to all of these various systems and join them together. So what GraphQL lets you do is write a query that looks a little bit like JSON if you took the values out of JSON and send that query to a server, have that server run that query against your backend and come up with a resulting data that mirrors the shape of the query that you asked for, which has lots of really cool properties, like um, it's really predictable exactly what data you're going to get back. You can use that as input to code generation. You can run additional validation to make sure that you're running queries that make sense and catch queries that don't make sense before they're ever checked in. Um, you can even add really high-quality tools into your, your development environment, so type aheads and linting engines and warnings, things like that, that we expect from high-quality developer environments. So a lot of things that were kind of missing from the API scene for a long time. So, so without getting into any kind of problematic NDA type stuff with your business at Facebook, um, was the driving force initially behind GraphQL the fact that you were working with multiple different languages? Or you, you alluded to a lot of things here, but what was the core driving force? What, what were you not getting out of the current uh, kind of API uh, tr traditions, if you can say it that way? Yeah, some of the problems that we ran into, um, we had a couple different APIs in use already that we initially tried to use. So we had a REST API. And the biggest problem with the REST API is that every reference to another object in the API was a URL to go load. And mobile networks, even today, but especially back in 2012, were not particularly fast. And latency actually is even worse than the download speeds. So any time where you need to load many objects in order to have all the data you need for a view. So we were trying to build Newsfeed, and Newsfeed is just really complicated. Every story has a link or multiple photos or an album or a video attached to it, or a story could be referencing another story, and there's just all of these sort of hierarchy of objects that are referenced. And with the REST endpoint, you'd load the newsfeed endpoint that would give you back the list of stories. And then from those stories, you'd have the person who wrote the story and any content contained within the story that you'd have to go fetch in another round trip, which might itself reference other objects that you'd have to go back in another round trip. And this sort of dependent, first you run to the network, you get the data, then you go to the network again, and then you get the data, and then you go to the network again, and then you get to the data, until eventually you have everything that you need to render. It was just incredibly slow, and it needed to have a lot of very custom code written in the iOS app to handle all those different network payloads and sort of coerce them into the shape that the iOS app actually wanted to operate within. Uh, so that was the biggest issue with that. We also had another API. This one is also a public API called FQL that 
mirrors the SQL syntax, but it's not a database query. It's a product API query. So that one's pretty interesting because you can kind of think about any API resource like it was a, a table with columns. And that means that you could run join queries. And that was the biggest downside to a REST API. So we tried moving everything from REST API to this FQL uh, API. And that helped solve these join queries to some degree. But once we realized that we had these sort of recursive joins where we had a a story that could reference another story that could reference another story, that's just a really challenging query to write. And then we had to worry about query optimization because if you tried to sort by or join by a column that wasn't indexed, you could accidentally write a query that was very slow. And it still didn't solve this problem of having to write all of this manual code on the iOS app itself to take the results of those queries and coerce them into the data that the application actually wanted. So let me ask you a so, question then. Uh, please. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Um, but so with F- FQL, right? That's what you were calling it? Yes. Yeah. So with FQL, if it was mirroring a SQL-like syntax, um, can't you just use iOS to request exactly what you were looking for? Or was it a little more in-depth than that? Oh, certainly we could. Yeah, that, that was one of the huge benefits of FQL over REST was that we got to select exactly what columns we wanted out of the API. So we weren't fetching data that we didn't need. That was big, especially for download speeds. But SQL just has some inherent limitations. And if you have a, a, a table where a column might have some uh, you know, ID that references another row in that same table and you want to do those joins, those just get really difficult to write. So we got in a place where we actually had queries that worked reasonably well, but there was one, maybe two engineers that could actually understand what those queries were actually describing. It became really challenging from a maintenance point of view as you know, new features were getting built, products were evolving, we'd need to try running experiments, all the various kinds of things you want to do with a product. And those queries would just frequently break. And then it wouldn't be clear what had happened when someone would tweak one of those queries. And all of a sudden, the data coming back wasn't exactly what we thought it was because we had these huge, like, thousands and thousands of character queries that were SQL queries. But they were SQL queries over incredibly complex sets of data. Uh, it's just, you know, not not exactly the, the task that SQL was designed to solve. So we certainly ran into some issues there. GraphQL kind of came from a couple different angles. It's why I was mentioning before that there was a handful of us that came together that ultimately created this thing. Um, my coworker, Nick Schrock, had actually just spent time working on that FQL API. And felt that it was kind of squishing a square peg through a round hole. On our back end, we have an object model that references everything. And we actually have terminology in the Facebook backend code base that refers to things in terms of a graph. And we were taking all of that and trying to squish it into the shape of a database table, even though that's not the way that we were thinking about it on the back end. Then our iOS app was querying that using SQL, taking the results, and then running some handwritten code to turn that back into an object model. So it felt really weird that we were pushing it through this SQL columnar form you know, hole. And he had this idea that 
well, like if we could just actually expose the, the backend APIs directly in some way, then maybe we could get around this, this you know, middle weird stage that doesn't feel right. And so Nick Schrock actually made the first prototype of what would become GraphQL. That was essentially, it looked a lot like um, PHP calls. So our backend was written in PHP. And he took PHP code and tried to simplify it as much as possible so that it could be kind of sort of serialized and turned into some kind of a query language as a way to say, take all of these method calls and then run them on the server, take the result and give it to the client. And once we started to play with this prototype, we realized that it was, it was we were onto something awesome. That it was allowed us to express exactly what we wanted and we could take advantage of years of work that had been put into those APIs on the server side onto the clients. The other piece of that was our iOS app wanted to get out of the business of handwriting all of this code and wanted to just deal in terms that the, the iOS app itself thought of data. So they were using core data at the time and they wanted to find a way to bridge core data to the rest of our services so they could have all that code written for them. So once we sort of clicked these two pieces together, we realized that if we could have these queries, we actually, at, at some point, were having the queries be generated by some core data models. That didn't work out so well, but it was an interesting experiment. But we had sort of all of the, the pieces that could snap together so that we had a clear, coherent story from how we talked about data on the server side all the way through to how we talked about data on the iOS side with very little sort of additional translation along the way. So once we had that working, then it was a, just a matter of refining it to a state where we could express all the things that we needed to express for day-to-day -day product development. When you said that you tried using uh, core data to kind of generate the, the queries for you, were you doing it in a sense like a, an ORM kind of or something else? A little bit. And that's, I think, part of the reason why it didn't work so well. Uh, the other part of the reason why that didn't work is it ended up being a little backwards. So ultimately what we did is the other way around. We, we hand wrote the queries expressing the data that we needed. And then based on those queries, then we automatically generated the core data models. And then ultimately we actually got out of core data uh, altogether and replaced it with something a little bit simpler that we had, had written ourselves that made it easier for us to generate that. Got it, got it. So you've already painted kind of a picture when it comes to actually the syntax of uh, a GraphQL query where you, you said to imagine it as JSON without the properties, right? Um, yeah. What, what I mean, paint, try to paint another picture because this is an audio-only podcast. Uh, try to paint another picture of what it takes to actually go and develop uh, a GraphQL-supported uh, API, if that's possible. So in order to develop a GraphQL API... On your, on your service, on your backend. The easiest way to do that is to take one of the libraries that have already been built on the shelf. So when we were doing that, we were kind of figuring out as we went. And so we were building all these pieces ourselves. But part of the benefit of GraphQL having been in the open source community for a number of years now is that there's a GraphQL backend library written for just about every popular backend language that's out there. So there's well over a dozen of them that are all generally high quality. And then once you've done that, all you really need to do is write the bindings to your existing code. So what that looks like is GraphQL likes to think about the world in terms of types and fields on types. 
So an example of a type could be a photo, and fields on that type could be the width of the photo, the height of the photo, the URL to load the actual asset for that photo to display. Um, it might also include references. That's that's those are fields as well. So it might say these are the the tags in the photo, and a tag is another type, and that might have fields like the x and y coordinate where to find that, and then another field that references who is actually being tagged. And that field might be a user, and a user has fields like their name and their email address and the last photo that they posted themselves. And so you can sort of see how, starting from a type and a field, you can walk all of those fields and eventually explore the whole sort of relationship set across a product. So when you build this on the server, what you're doing is describing those types in those fields. And oftentimes those end up mapping pretty cleanly to existing object models you already have on the server. So for example, um, a lot of people have developed in Ruby on Rails before. There's a lot about Ruby on Rails that I like, some parts that I don't like, but one part that I do like is that it helps you think in terms of these types and these fields. So you describe the various types that are in your Ruby on Rails code base and the fields that they have. And there's libraries out there that will let you say this uh, Ruby on Rails type corresponds to this GraphQL type. These fields on my Ruby on Rails type correspond to these GraphQL types. And then once you've done that, you're, you're pretty much done. You have a GraphQL API up and running. And then all of the more complicated bits, like actually interpreting a query to understand what it's looking for, executing that query with the you know, sort of minimum set of required fetches, um, a lot of that is then done for you by that library. Got it. Got it. So then I guess before we get into the tr translation of how do you populate data with with uh, with these types, um, what what kind of power does uh, the actual query language itself have, I guess? So say, for example, I, I understand that you can work with array data, for example. Is there a way to paginate or pa I, I always get this wrong, paginate uh, the data uh, without having to do that from a back end kind of database level or uh, maybe you can shed so, some light on that. Absolutely. Yeah, you can do anything in GraphQL that your backend can do. GraphQL won't do anything for you that your backend can't do. And that's actually an important property because it means that, first, GraphQL is not going to make any assumptions about what can and can't happen on your backend, which means all the things that you do expose are presumably going to be the things that you can execute reasonably. So with GraphQL, we want to set a clear expectation that any of the, the queries that are written can be executed efficiently, which is actually not, not always possible with all query languages. With a lot of query languages, there's these degenerate cases where you write a query that is going to have extremely poor runtime performance. And there's whole professions built around making sure that doesn't happen. You've got database admins, you've got these you know, tooling companies that build um, tools that help you look at your queries and figure out what's going to be fast or slow. And that's, that entire problem domain just doesn't exist for GraphQL because GraphQL is not trying to add additional capabilities to your backend beyond what your backend can already do. That said, what GraphQL does do is help you model field accesses on those types. So the GraphQL query language is relatively simple. It starts from the very top with where you sort of describe, here's all the things that you can do. And that's in terms of this top level type, we usually call the query type. And there's fields on the query type. 
And each of those fields typically correspond to a function or a class method somewhere in your code base that gets executed when that field in that query is being processed. So that is then in your code base. That's just code. You can do whatever you want. And initial, uh, ultimately, you're going to return some data out of that function. And GraphQL is going to continue from there into whatever the next field, you know, the, the child field uh, of that is. So you can return arrays of, of values. You can return individual values. You can return objects um, that will then you, you can be queried uh, even further on from there. Uh, and by doing so, um, it's really just a matter of functions getting called in the right order. Those functions can also return asynchronous primitives. So in the world of JavaScript, that's promises. And GraphQL is going to make sure that it waits for those promises as in the right order so that all of the data is there in the you know, appropriate order in the end. GraphQL query language also lets you provide arguments to fields, which sort of completes the picture of a, a field like a function. So for example, I was describing that photo type before. And perhaps there is some field where I want to access a photo, but uh, my backend actually has multiple sizes of that photo available. So I want the, the querier to tell me what size it wants. It might want small, medium, large, or it might want uh, a specific pixel size, width, and height. Um, I'm going to decide what's appropriate for my API based on whatever my backend API is capable of providing. So in the query, it's actually going to look like a function call. It has, or like a JavaScript or a C-style language function call, where it's the name of the field and then some parentheses, and then an argument provided for that size. And then that's actually translated directly to whatever my backend code language is. There's some method with that name that has an argument that gets called, and that's going to do some work, and it's either going to return a value or return some asynchronous primitive for a value to be resolved in the future. And then GraphQL just makes sure all those things get called in the right order. So I think the power is kind of in that simplicity, where the GraphQL execution is really just about calling functions in the right order and then handling the resolving of the asynchronous primitives that come back out. The only real special case is when there's arrays of values, in which case anything downstream from there kind of works like a map operation. That subquery is going to occur on every every item in the array. Uh, and that lets us ask for lists of things. So you asked before about pagination. And pagination is a great example of just sort of an API best practice that still ultimately boils down to fields and arguments on field. So I might want to list um, all of the photos that I have, and I have lots of them, but I don't want to load all of them at once because that might take a while to do. So you could say, load me 20 photos. And I could then, from the API, produce an array of 20 photo objects and return that back. And along with it, return back a cursor that says, if you give me back this cursor, then I can load the next one. Or maybe I want to do a skip 20, next 20 sort of operation. You know, Sometimes uh, some databases prefer that style of pagination. GraphQL has no opinion on what style of pagination should work best. Instead, it just offers that field and argument style query language. You pass what you need. And then GraphQL is going to call the right function, and your backend is going to do whatever's responsible for that. Got it. So you've you've done a lot of discussion on uh, fields being mapped to functions, right? So far. Um, so when it comes to let's let's say we've hooked up uh, GraphQL to in our backend through some kind of relational database. Let's go paint that story. 
Uh, now let's say that maybe uh, instead of photos, let's go ahead and play with, around with the example of maybe blogs and blog authors, right? Two, two kind of related pieces of data that might exist in, sure. in separate tables uh, in your database. Um, when it comes to querying with GraphQL, uh, what's the best practice? I mean, you could easily do a, a join and, and gather the author information for a blog, uh, at, at one time, or should you be doing something like uh, using functions where you should do a separate set of maybe queries uh, should author data need to be called? I mean, can, do you have any insight on that? What's back best practice? I don't know if that, that there's sense. a right answer to that. Yeah, yeah, it totally makes sense. I'm not sure if there's a right answer to that. I think what works best is kind of testing both for the particular setup of backend and, and database technologies that you're using to see what works best for you. Yeah. Although I have noticed that the attempt to create sort of the minimum set of complex SQL queries out of a GraphQL query is difficult, especially since GraphQL tends to be more expressive than SQL in describing relationships between things, which means that it is not always possible to describe a single SQL query with a set of joins that could fulfill all the data required for a given GraphQL query. Uh, but there are projects out there that try to do that, and they're super interesting. And I think there's a lot of really interesting sort of research potential to have a sort of joint approach where there's a little bit of if there's an opportunity to do an efficient join, they'll do that efficient join. Otherwise, it'll uh, fall back to simpler queries. At Facebook, we stuck to the idea of having simple queries. And the thought behind that was if you have very simple queries, it's much easier to treat them like a, a batch where you sort of you know uh, select in set rather than select where ID equals whatever. And what that lets you do is say, say for example, we wanted to have this blog aggregation where I wanted to load all the blog authors I'm interested in and then get their last post. The SQL query to run that is pretty clear, right? I want to select all blog authors, join on uh, a table that has their posts, and then select one from that from that table as well. Um, another way to write that is to first run a SQL query that loads all blog authors, gets the IDs from the result of that query, and then does a second SQL query that loads from that blog posts table that does a you know select where um, operation or select where in operation with all of the various IDs that we had loaded from there. That tends to be the more scalable approach for GraphQL backends because it's much easier to do that. The other nice thing is that approach works well not just for a SQL style backend but for lots of different kinds of backends. So if you have a key value store backend then those typically are very poor at join operations anyhow, and you already need to come up with different ways to optimize access. The other really nice thing about them is that you know a priori what queries are going to get sent to your backend, and you're not in the business of dynamically creating SQL queries based on query analysis. That's good for a couple reasons. One is it's just less CPU time spent on the server, and that stuff adds up. Um, certainly when you need to run kind of the same query, if you know if I launch my iOS app with this you know blog authors, blog posts 
GraphQL query in it, I'm going to get the same query over and over again, but from different users and at different times of the day. The actual query that's going to get sent to the back end is going to be very easy to predict. So that's good from a security point of view as well. And it's also really good from a performance point of view, because I can make those stored procedures on my back end, or I can treat that as a caching layer, where at the API to user level, I might not want to do caching because I don't want to cache on edge something that has sensitive user information in it. But from a backend to a database might be an opportune place to do caching. And having dynamic queries makes it difficult to have a cache hit. Having predictable queries makes it easy to have a cache hit. So these are all things to keep in mind. Uh, you know, just the, the picture of what a sophisticated, scaled system looks like that has a backend, typically multiple backends or multiple services, um, in addition to often multiple services in multiple languages, issuing data over an API, there's a lot that can go into what good performance looks like. So I want to hesitate around saying that anything is necessarily best practice. Instead, talk about what's easier or harder to build. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, from a personal perspective, it sounds like this simple query modular expre- uh, a modular approach is, is definitely a solid choice because of how easy it is to maintain. And just having smaller SQL queries is definitely a win, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Definitely, uh, I wouldn't define it as best practice, right? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned caching just now. Um, so I, I actually do have some questions around caching. Um, so and, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but I believe that when, you, when you're working with a REST API and you're doing a GET request, uh, you can actually cache that request. Uh, now, when it comes to GraphQL, um, and I, I think that there's multiple ways you can do this, and I think uh, you correct me at any time if I'm wrong, but the most common approach is to send your GraphQL query as a post payload, correct? Um, sometimes post, sometimes get. There's there's not always one sure. right way to send that over a network, but um, the, often, yeah, I see them done as post requests. In the event that there's, uh, if, if it's done as a post request, uh, I, I don't think you can cache post requests, can you? That's right. The browser cache won't cache them. Um, caching is a complicated topic. There's so many pieces to how caching works. And I think what makes it complicated is just that every single layer of one system talking to another system is an opportunity for a cache. So you have, say you're writing a JavaScript application. Yeah. You have the ability to have a cache in your actual application code, right? You could say, hey, I just sent that query 10 seconds ago. I'm not going to send it. That's a cache. You can have the browser cache. So the browser has this built-in thing that says if you load a particular web resource and that web resource has some headers on it that says I'm good for this amount of time, the browser actually won't, even though you say, hey, go load this thing, it'll say, ah, I'm not going to bother with network requests. Uh, I already have that. That's a browser cache. Beyond that, you have multiple levels of network cache, right? So you have edge caching. That's the very first thing that you hit along the network topology says, I already got that thing, let me send it to you. So it's kind of like a browser cache. Beyond that, there's sort of another version of edge caching, which is the first piece of uh, infrastructure that's actually owned by whatever domain you're trying to access is. So if you're using you know, Cloudflare or something like that, um, their CDNs isn't a single data center. They have little tiny CDNs spread out all over the internet. Uh, and so you have the opportunity to cache there. 
you have that then falling all the way through to your primary servers that are located in whatever data center that you're using or AWS or whatever, there's then multiple opportunities to cache there, right? So now you're talking about your web server and whether your web server is going to interpret that request as a uh, sort of the ability to to re-add a cache at that moment if it wants to do some processing first, um, all the way back to, okay, I'm actually running code for this request. Should I talk to the database? And I can either go to the database or I could hit a cache layer there as well. So there's so many opportunities to cache. And often the answer to what does a good caching strategy look like is to be using multiple of these different points of caching. And often in sort of a complex way where different pieces of the pie get cached with different sort of arrangements of all of these various pieces to end up with the best performance. So often when I talk to people about caching in the context of GraphQL, they're coming at it with the perspective of REST API, where what they're used to using is Git requests and the browser cache. And certainly it is true that when you move from REST to GraphQL, that particular opportunity goes away. Not necessarily because you're using a POST request instead of a GET request. Certainly you could use a GET request as well. But even if you were using a GET request, you're probably sending different variables with each request. You're probably having something slightly different each time you run that query, such that a browser cache would be very low value for that API request. And especially if you have sort of similar overlapping GraphQL queries in your product, then the overlap between those, even if you had browser caching enabled, the overlap is just going to get re-requested, right? So say, for example, back to our blog example, yep. I want to load all my blog authors in the first blog post, and then I want to click into one of those blog authors and get all of their blog posts. Well, I've already loaded that first blog post, right? So should I load it again? If it's in my browser cache and I have another GraphQL query that says load me all the blog posts for this blog author, there's no way that it can know that a previous GraphQL query that was different happened to be related in some way. The browser cache just doesn't have context to do that. Now, when an actual application layer cache that's in your JavaScript application or iOS application or Android application, it might actually have the relevant context to know actually, here's the range of paginated data that I want. I already know that I have the first one, so I want to skip the first one and load everything after the first one. You might you know, actually issue a query like that, knowing what you have already loaded. But even then, I think the real relevant caching strategy in terms of maximizing performance is best had at the relationship between the service and the database. If you actually look at all of the different pieces where data access becomes slow, database or sorry, where, where data access overall becomes slow. It's it's accessing the database that tends to be the the single biggest bottleneck. Um, at least in in my experience from having built things um, at Facebook and having talked to a handful of others. And that's where it's especially vital to have a cache layer. And that sort of tees back to what I was talking about before, having very predictable queries that go back to your database. Because if you know what those are, then those are much easier to cache. Um, the other layer of the other layer of caching that kind of is much more difficult to build with a GraphQL API is that edge caching. So where you say my browser doesn't have anything in its cache, but at some point along the network topology, 
I want to see this network resource and uh, return a value before it even gets to my backend servers. That's a really useful tool to have for a CDN. So once your JavaScript application is bundled up, the actual bundled JavaScript should have edge caching turned on in, in its CDN, right? And some APIs, some REST APIs can do that as well. If you have an API where you don't need to be logged in to use it, and the data is extremely stable, so you know the results of a particular API endpoint are very unlikely to change, then edge caching is a great way to save load on your servers for that API. But most APIs, um, REST APIs or otherwise, don't have that property. They have data that changes frequently, data that you need to be logged in to access. And those also can't really benefit from an edge cache. And those also might actually encounter user experience issues from using a browser cache, where you might actually want to load the newest version of that data. And because your browser cache says, oh, that resource, I already got that for you. Here you go. Now you have a slightly old version of that thing, you thought you were doing a reload and, and you didn't. So in my experience, browser cache can be a really important piece of a caching strategy. However, for data that changes frequently, which is the domain of data for which GraphQL is best suited, a browser cache actually gets in the way more often than it helps you out. No, that, that's, that's perfectly fair. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, so a, f a few times you mentioned logging into an API, so an API that's protected in some fashion, um, which is pretty common for most REST APIs. Um, what's the strategy behind that when it comes to GraphQL? Um, is there, are you protecting queries? Are you tra uh, protecting fields? Um, what exactly does that involve? So we talk about this topic, there's two different pieces that are important to consider. There's authorization and uh, access control. So first, you, the first one's all about um, logging in. So the actual logging in is a separate domain. It's a, it's a different problem. And that's true for REST APIs as well. A REST API doesn't care if you're using username, password, or if you're using OAuth, or if you're using JWTs. Um, it doesn't care, right? And the same is true with GraphQL. GraphQL doesn't care about how you're doing the logging in. Um, it's just joint, going to run the query for you in some context. Um, that said, there's in every GraphQL library out there, there's, there's some way to pass relevant context for a request throughout the execution of that query. And the most relevant piece of data is your JWT token or your OAuth token or whatever is representing the logged in session. So that's that piece of the problem. The other piece is then making sure that you're accessing the right data, the data that you have, you're allowed to have access to. So that's the, the, off, or the, the other piece of this auth problem. And that you end up having to think about very differently from how you think about a, a REST endpoint. Most of the REST APIs that I've worked with in the past, um, certainly not all of them, but a lot of the ones that I've used, tend to think about this as, first, I'm going to see if the logged in auth authentication is allowed to hit this particular URL. So it might be slash photos slash some ID, or it might be you know, slash blog slash whatever. 
And it doesn't actually know anything about the data. It just knows the URL route. So given this URL route, it makes some assumptions about what data may or may not be accessed, and then has that authentication token, and then decides what to do. And it either lets it go through and executes the actual database requests, or it says, ah, sorry, you're not allowed to see that. And it returns an appropriate HTTP code that says you can't see that thing. In GraphQL, we think about this differently because you're not just looking at one thing in a query, typically. So for example, back to our example of loading all the blog authors and their first blog posts, say for example that one of those blog authors actually made their blog private and we're not on their list. So even though I know about that blog author, I can't see their posts. So it would be a mistake to say, uh, okay, I'm hitting this URL called GraphQL. <laughs> what can I or can't I see? And I can't know the you know everything that I may or may not be able to see. I just have to start. So typically, this is done outside the realm of GraphQL. So back to this idea that every field is backed by some function or some piece of code in your backend that runs. What I love to see in a well-built GraphQL server is backend code that's aware of this access rules. So if I have backend code that doesn't know anything about who's doing the requesting, then that to me screams security issue. And GraphQL sort of makes it very clear when you're missing this relationship between the actual lower level data loading and this uh, knowledge of who's doing that data loading. Because that's typically the level where well-built GraphQL queries are, are doing that sort of um, doing that sort of checking. So when that function is called and it says, okay, here's the, the, I was querying this field, so here's the relevant function to call. Here's any relevant arguments that were provided to that. And then also here's the request context that has the JWT token uh, or the you know, OAuth token or whatever. And, and what should we do? And it should decide at that moment, now that it has full context, ah, I'm the blog post loading function. And this is so-and-so's user's authentication session, and I should check first. Is this user allowed to see this blog author's posts? And if the answer is no, then return an error or return null or return something other than actually loading that data. And that's exactly how Facebook's GraphQL API works. That's how a lot of high-quality GraphQL APIs work. Um, there are some projects that I've seen out there that allow you to annotate the fields themselves with some sort of sort of role-based authentication. Uh, but I've found in my experience that that just typically doesn't scale very well because role-based authentication doesn't handle these sorts of scenarios where you have, you know, this user's posts, blog posts are private, or this user blocked that user and can't see their content. That just doesn't model well into a role-based, uh, you know, sort of Unix-y way of thinking about authorization. Yeah, it doesn't model well. I, I totally agree. Um, I imagine uh, it would work for the small scenario, but as, as it grows, um, it's going to get more and more crazy. Um, I have another question regarding the best practice, and, and feel free to use the previous comment that you gave me regarding best practice. But let's say that I've been developing uh, REST APIs for a while now, or let's say that I, I have a new API that I need to develop. Um, is it a good idea to develop a REST API and then wrap it with GraphQL? Um, rather than having GraphQL communicate directly with your database? 
That's a great question. I don't know that it's necessarily the right or the wrong way to go about it. I think if you were starting from scratch, I would think a lot less about the GraphQL or REST pieces and focus attention a lot more on that object model. Making sure that you have you know, the relevant classes and methods or type classes and functions or whatever is the appropriate thing for your language of choice to model data and types and fields and functions, I would start there and make sure that no matter what kind of API we want to build, we're building atop something that already has knowledge of all the various properties we want, like you know the, the sort of authorization um, topic we were talking about before, the caching topics we were talking about before. Once I had that, it would be really easy to build either a REST API or a GraphQL API or both. Let's go with the scenario. Let's change it up. Let's let's go with the scenario where I have this pre-existing REST API. Uh, it's got like 400 endpoints in there. It's been touched by 300 different developers. It's some very crazy legacy stuff. What would you advise somebody who says, you know what, this GraphQL thing is very cool. I need to get on this train. How would you advise them to getting started? Would you tell them to start over, or would you tell them to wrap it? I mean, what 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 exactly would happen? Definitely don't want to start over. That's a recipe for disaster right there. Actually, wrapping your REST API is an excellent way to get started. And it might actually be an excellent way to be done as well. One of the really awesome things that REST APIs do is it presents that object model. So even if your code under the hood is just totally incomprehensible and it's legacy and it's really hard to understand what's going on and every endpoint is different from every other endpoint, what we would hope in a reasonably written REST API, at least this is what was sort of described in the original you know, hypermedia proposals, was is this, this object model, right? Where every sort of URL path describes a type, and while the fields might not always be perfectly documented, uh, at least you're going to have some reasonable expectation of what data is going to come back from each of those requests. So that's great. That's exactly what I was talking about before of what we need to get started to build a really great REST or GraphQL API. And especially if your REST API is a logged-in API and is already considering things like access control, then that's awesome. That's one less thing that you need to additionally think about when building out a GraphQL API. So then your GraphQL API can be really just focused on you know, the, the functions that need to, to get fulfilled are about either running some relevant REST request or taking the result of a previously run REST request and extracting the appropriate data out of it. I think that's an awesome place to start and could actually be a great place to be done as well, especially in the scenario where you have multiple services running something and those services need to crosstalk and you need to run essentially join queries across you know, multiple related and in, in concept REST APIs. Sure. I see that happen a lot with various kinds, various companies that have, you know, started small, built up over time, and have built out multiple services. And GraphQL can be a great way to sort of layer over all of those things and provide, sometimes for the first time, a coherent look at the entire whole. Yeah, that's that's uh, a good perspective on it. Um, so you mentioned Facebook is using GraphQL heavily, especially since it came out of Facebook. Do you have any other kind of examples of people using it in production in a particularly um, well-made fashion, I guess you can say? Um, yeah, there's 
GraphQL is being used by, I think, the majority of the Fortune 100 companies at this point to very good effect. Um, you'll see a lot of content getting written about GraphQL from companies big and small. Um, I think one of the companies that gets the most attention for its use of GraphQL is GitHub, because not only were they building all of their internal product on top of GraphQL, but they also chose to make the newest version of their public API GraphQL as well. And that was actually a first because Facebook started the GraphQL project and it builds all of its product on top of GraphQL. But it just builds its product on top of GraphQL. It doesn't have its partner APIs as GraphQL as well. And GitHub went that extra mile, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And just having talking to, just ha from having spoken to the, the engineers that worked on that project, um, can tell you that it's really high quality, and they've they've been sharing a lot of that stuff back out. Uh, Airbnb uses GraphQL. Shopify is really big in the GraphQL community uh, as well, and have, have open sourced a lot of their technology. Um, Atlassian uses GraphQL to great effect for a lot of their new products, and uh, it sounds like they're starting to migrate some of their older products there as well. Um, Intuit has been using GraphQL, especially for that scenario that I described before about joining lots of disparate systems together. Um, sure. Part of what makes Intuit a really interesting company is that they actually have a lot of really successful products that started as their own companies that through acquisition or some other means joined under the Intuit umbrella um, and have different backends, totally different ways of setting things up and needed some way to think about how to coherently think about those holes. And GraphQL for them was a, a tool for doing that. Sounds awesome. Um, as far as GraphQL and its future, what exactly does it have left uh, to do as far as growth? I mean, is there anything new that's coming to GraphQL that, or ideas that have popped up that have been like particularly awesome? Yeah, GraphQL is always evolving. We actually have working group sessions every couple months where uh, popular contributors show up to talk about um, how GraphQL should evolve into the future. Although that's actually been decelerating, and that's very much on purpose. What we want to do with GraphQL is actually give people a stable base that they can build on top of. What we don't want to do is have something that changes so frequently that um, scares people away from betting their infrastructure on top of it. So we've actually been spending most of our time hardening it and making sure that um, not only can it support all of the various scenarios that we want it to support, for example, uh, a, about a year and a half ago, there was a lot of effort put into GraphQL supporting real-time APIs, um, and, and that was quite a process. And so that's now also part of the GraphQL specification. I would say most of the forward-looking momentum is in the world of these tools and libraries, making it easy for people to get started with GraphQL. Once you are started with GraphQL, making it easier to actually leverage all the things that GraphQL makes possible. So... I was talking at, at the beginning of our discussion about um, better tooling integration, integration with your development environment, uh, better logging. Uh, all of those things are possible, but someone has to build them. And rather than having every company that's out there using GraphQL, building this stuff for themselves, it's great when people share that stuff back out to the rest of the community. And that's certainly happening. So I think that's where most of the growth and development of GraphQL has been in the last year or so, and where I think it will continue to accelerate over the next couple of years is just more and better quality tools for all of the various development experience around using GraphQL.
That's the beauty of open source. Totally. Get the community involved. Um, so since we're just about out of time here, is there any last minute words of wisdom that you want to give the audience uh, in regards to GraphQL in general, your experience building it, just anything? Sure. I think one of the things that was most exciting about the the whole process of, of designing GraphQL and open sourcing it and helping steward it through the community since then is, you know, just this realization that this thing has been bigger than um, bigger than what we thought it ever could be. Uh, and there were plenty of times where we had, you know, where we could have just not, not shared this stuff, not developed it further. Um, and a big part of the reason why we, why we did, and especially on the open source side is, um, is just continuous uh, feedback, positive feedback, especially from from the whole community, and uh, that's not something that I anticipated. You know, when we when we first were talking about open sourcing GraphQL, you didn't really know what that would even look like. We weren't sure it was going to be a good idea. We thought, you know, maybe maybe we're we're just crazy over here, and people are going to look at this thing and and think that it will be meaningless for them. And it was actually a, a separate project. Um, the Relay project that uh, is a JavaScript client library that uses GraphQL, and they really wanted to open source what they had built, and it wouldn't make any sense without GraphQL to come along with it. And that was sort of the forcing function for us to to actually follow through with an open source effort. And we're super happy that we we did it. Um, so I think I don't know if that translates to words of wisdom as much as it is just kind of a random ending story, um, but. I don't know. I think believe in your believe in your coworkers, believe in the open source community, and be open to feedback. Yeah, I'm I, I'm totally for that. I I'm glad that it's open source because I'm I'm happy to be using it right now. So it's uh, it's a great thing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time, Lee, uh, for being on this podcast. I think that all of these popular requests for for this topic, I think they'll be very satisfied with everything that you had to say today. I appreciate you being on the so. show. Absolutely, my pleasure. If you haven't looked into GraphQL already, I strongly encourage that you do. As Lee mentioned in the podcast, uh, most of the Fortune 100 companies are adopting GraphQL. Um, so I'm not saying that this is the future of API development, but it is definitely a strong contender and you don't want to fall behind when it comes to best practices and the future of developing APIs. From personal experience, having worked with GraphQL, I find it to be as easy or easier than developing REST APIs. So you can actually develop a GraphQL-powered API with the same amount of code or less code, and by the end of it, it may actually be cleaner code uh, because of how you access it and how you've modeled your data as Lee described. If you're listening to this podcast episode from a network that allows you to leave a rating and review, such as iTunes, it would mean a lot to me if you went in and left it a five-star rating and then said something nice about the podcast or how it benefited you in maybe your commute or something else, um, because then it'll give other listeners a chance to figure out, well, is this podcast for me? The Polyglot Developer blog and podcast is always looking for sponsorship. Um, so if you have a business relevant to web, mobile, or even game development, 
reach out because there could be a sponsorship opportunity for you. So if you go to thepolyglotdeveloper.com slash sponsors, you can find information on what kind of sponsorship packages are available. And that concludes episode number 20.